This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Bronwyn Milkins. Hey, mental workers, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we got a really great episode for you, and I'm really stoked because we've got a listener story, but the listener stories we've had so far, they've been people who are kind of towards the end of their journey or people who have already finished and are are well into registration. But today, we've got a provisional psychologist, and they are one and a half years into their journey. We've got a year to go, and so I'm really keen to share with you the insights, thoughts, feelings, challenges successes that they've had so far into their journey and where they're going to go. And here to take us all through it is Natalie Shamir. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Brunman. So happy to be on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. It's so nice to have you on. So as I said, listeners, Natalie is a provisional psychologist and, and it's correct, right? You're one and a half years into your journey? Yes, that's right. Awesome. And, and you're doing the four plus two pathway? Yeah, the four plus two pathway. Excellent. So listeners, what we're going to do in this episode is we'll we'll frame where Natalie is at, where she's working, and then we'll talk about what prompted her to get into psychology. We'll talk about some of the good things, some of the challenges. And then we've got a really interesting discussion that I'm keen to have later about what Natalie's learned about self-disclosures in sessions. And then we've got some tips and tricks, and then we'll go through with what Natalie sees herself doing in the future. Sound good? Sounds like a plan. Excellent. Let's jump into it then. So Natalie, I'm very keen to hear from you just what you're doing currently. So could you tell us a bit about what setting you're doing your internship in and what your day-to-day role looks like? Yeah. So at the moment I'm working as a school psychologist uh, in a primary school and a high school, a senior high school. Um, and the primary school is just K to six, um, and the high school is a year 11 and 12 senior campus. So that's full time. It's three days at the primary school and two days at the senior high school. And, and what kind of things make up your day? Yeah, it's quite different from primary to high school. So um, I, I love the variety I get from each role, really. So in the high school, you know, I see students that are 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, sometimes even 19 years old. Um, but it's a lot of counselling there um, with those senior students. That's majority of my role. Um, it really is quite a revolving door in terms of just seeing students back to back or attending wellbeing meetings um, where we discuss, you know, the main concerns regarding uh, specific students that, that are just on our radar to keep an eye on. And at the primary school, it's quite varied. It's um, a mixture of, I'd say, assessment. Um, so a lot of screeners, doing a lot of screener questionnaires, whether that's for ADHD, autism, anxiety, low mood, things like that. And doing, obviously, a little bit of counselling too, but more so the assessment. And we do a lot of paperwork. Um, to support students with additional needs or neurodiversity um, and they're called uh, access request applications. So it's perhaps, I like to think of it in simple terms as the primary school is a bit more paperwork um, and assessment and writing reports and parent parenting support and meetings, things like that. And the senior high school, a lot more face-to-face client contact. Mm-hmm. 
No, it sounds really interesting. And I'm wondering with a four plus two, you can, I guess, theoretically choose wherever you want to go and do your internships. I'm, I'm curious what drew you to working in the Department of Education in schools? Yeah, so it kind of, I had a, a unique path to becoming a um, psychologist, a provisional psychologist. So I was a primary school teacher prior to that um, for a few years. And in that role working as a teacher, I was really drawn to, I guess, the children who perhaps presented um, as neurodivergent or had well-being needs and, and seeing the success in supporting those students uh, with their well-being and, and to see how far they came throughout that year being their class teacher. I mean, I found that aspect of my role most rewarding. Yeah, so I guess that kind of led me down the path of naturally sticking to working in schools really um, and, and having that background experience of teaching I mean it, it's just given me such an advantage to be able to work with students in schools. So you mentioned that you really enjoyed working with the students who were neurodivergent and needed that additional support so it was really was it becoming a psychologist was a way of getting more experience with this role or was there some discomfort with teaching like were there things you didn't like or was it a bit of both yeah really good question I'd say it's a bit of both in my case I'd say that I mean uh, my, my dad's a psychologist himself so oh, cool yeah a lot of people say to me oh you've followed in dad's footsteps which I promise is not the case not <laughs> that there's anything wrong with that but I I definitely feel that I've always had an interest in psychology in the profession I've always been drawn to the well-being side of supporting young people. Um, but also, uh, on the other hand, in terms of teaching, I, I did find it was quite challenging in how physically exhausting it was um, and mentally just to support a class of, say, 26 students. Um, and, and there were a lot of behavioural challenges. Yeah, it, it was just really exhausting. So for me, it was the natural next step really to pursue my specific interest in student wellbeing through doing school counselling or school psychology. Cool. And I'm wondering, like, how long did you sit on the decision to stop teaching and go into psychology? Yeah, so it probably was, I mean, I taught for about two years, so not, not too long. And I ended up doing a retraining program through the Department of Education. Oh, cool. where, yeah, so they subsidised a fair bit um, of my university study um, to retrain. They gave me a placement and, and that was all with, you know, the guarantee of getting a permanent full-time position to work within the Department of Education. Fantastic. I'm interested to dive into what have been the best things so far and then the most challenging things. So let's start with the best things. What have been the things that have been most interesting, surprising and just fantastic for you? The, the key one, which really is what got me into the career, is the sense of reward that we get from being a part of a young person's journey. Can you tell us a bit more about what it feels like to be part of a young person's journey and just know that I guess the progress that they've made is something that you've been part of? Yeah, I mean, working with these young people, I mean, it, it really is just such an honour, I feel, to 
you know, often I, I will meet a young person and they'll open up so quickly and, and feel comfortable to share things with me that perhaps they haven't shared with anyone else. And I think that puts us as psychologists in quite a powerful position and one that, you know, I take seriously and, and I definitely don't, obviously don't take advantage of. And, you know, I, I always let the young person know that I'm really grateful that they've opened up to me and yeah, to be a part of that process, I think where they invite me in to support them, um, to give them the tools that they may need to feel empowered enough to navigate the challenges and obstacles in their life. Uh, I really, it just makes me feel just really lucky, to be honest. Yeah, I can really get the sense of those warm, fuzzy feelings that you get from being part of this young person's journey. And just before we move on to the most challenging things so far. I'm curious, you know, having changed careers entirely and you're 1.5 years into it, do you feel like it's the right choice for you? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, and of course we're going to unpack the challenges in yeah. a moment, but <laughs> I, I definitely feel that this is the career for me and you know, that, that there's a lot that I bring to the role that um, I feel, you know, despite the imposter syndrome that perhaps we all go through yeah. and experience as early career psychs, I think that I, I have found my calling and, yeah, I think that sense of reward is is the key thing that keeps me in this career, really. Nah, lovely, and I can totally relate to that sense of reward. It is so fulfilling when you see a person who has been really struggling just take some steps in the direction that they really want their life to go in. It's Yeah, it's a feeling like no other. For sure, yeah. Mm. So let's move on then to unpacking some of the challenging things so far and how you've gotten through them and navigated them and we'll give listeners some tips along the way. But did you want to start with anything in particular that stands out to you as a major challenge? Yeah, I think more of a recent challenge that comes to mind has been just the nature of referrals lately have been typically that depressed mood presentation and even the more pointier end, you know, self-harm, suicidal ideation. And when you're seeing clients back-to-back, even in a, whole, in a single day, um, that present that way where it is that pointier end, you know, heavy sort of discussions in those sessions, you know, I, I have been reflecting on, you know, the role that vicarious trauma plays and how it can impact on you to engage in perhaps that compassion fatigue and how our cups essentially I like to use the metaphor of our cups feeling quite drained and empty and you know we need to engage more and more in self-care to fill that cup back up so that we can still pour into other people's cups and and support them on their you know well-being journey. Yeah, no, I think you're speaking to something really important because as a provisional psychologist, it might be some of the first time that you've heard of people's struggles with things like self-harm and suicidal ideation and sometimes even suicide attempts and sometimes people have really rough stuff going on at home. And you're right, when you're seeing people back to the back, it can be a bit like, oh my gosh, I haven't had time to breathe and digest like what they're saying to me. Is that how it feels to you? Do you feel like it's getting a bit heavy? Yeah, yeah, it definitely has been really challenging and often client presentations can kind of make you reflect on your life and totally. where you're at. 
Yeah. And just, you know, the people around you and, you know, can almost have a bit of an existential crisis moment where you go, <laughs> yeah. where are we in the world where, you know, so many services, at least in, in Sydney, New South Wales, I feel, you know, I refer a lot of people on to external services. And then I have parents of young children coming back and telling me the wait list is a year to see a paediatrician. So at a structural organisational level, I guess, there are a lot of challenges there that, you know, make it really difficult to um, support these young people. Yeah, you know, when I hear that, that brings up feelings of helplessness and despair to me. It's like, I know very well the challenges of referring clients and they're like, nope, they've, they don't have any space or it's a year-long wait list and you're just like, bloody hell, there's like nowhere else that can help this person and give them the care that they need. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's really challenging. And I think it's particularly difficult when, you know, our our service at the moment is quite short staff um, within schools, but also external services equally uh, either short staffed or there are just too many referrals to manage. And we, we know the role that early intervention plays, especially working with young people. We've with kids, you know, in the primary school age range. Um, we're all about nicking things in the bud and it's really difficult at the moment to do that when the wait lists are so long. Yeah, I imagine I imagine that's quite frustrating for you. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a difficult one to navigate and, yeah, it can be definitely frustrating and, you know, that sense of reward that, that gets you into the yeah. career and keeps you in the role it starts to weather away a little bit. Yeah, totally. Because it's like, yeah, I got in this biz to help people not have them linger and become more mentally ill because they can't get the help they need. For sure. Yeah. Mm. And that's, that's working through that. I think in the last couple of months for me has been a major challenge, but I do have some tips in that regard. Yeah. I would love to hear how you're navigating (laughs) this and how you're taking care of yourself. Yeah. So, I mean, we always, everyone always recommends, you know, how as psychologists, we always have supervision on a regular basis of some kind. The provisional psychologists at the moment for me, I've got fortnightly one and a half hour check-ins with my supervisor. He's really supportive and, and helps me you know, reflect a lot. I mean, obviously the internship program is, is you know, reflection is core to it. Um, but he's really helped support me to navigate my caseload, the nature of complex cases that I'm managing and perhaps looking at whether um, like job share partners can perhaps take on some of those more complex ones or at least um, vary the, you know, clients that I'm working with so that they're perhaps, you know, not 80% depressed and perhaps suicidal in that pointy end. Um, just just to have a little bit of a perhaps mental break totally. um, where I can experience that sense of reward where I'm like, oh, I, I can actually see some improvement in this client yeah. um, across sessions. So, yeah, supervision is has been massive in supporting me in, in kind of taking a step back, having a bit of a breather, you know, focusing on self-care, you know, engaging in activities that I've previously really enjoyed, whether that's, you know, going for a bike ride, going for a walk, getting getting up and getting out, really, get, getting in touch with nature, connecting with others socially. So, 
yeah, you know, those grounding techniques, I guess, come come to play as well. And so that's been helpful um, and leaning on other colleagues as well, you know, peer consultation, talking with other colleagues um, where they've been helpful to kind of, yeah, do a bit of a joint case conceptualisation for these more complex clients. Mm. That's been helpful too. So it sounds like with supervision, you really like it because it's debriefing, but you also get that practical support with, okay, here's some ways we could solve the problems that you're facing and here's some things that you could try. And then with the peers, it sounds like it's also debriefing and that shared help with the practical side of things. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you've got the emotional side and you hit the nail on the head there when you said the debriefing aspect. I think we all benefit from getting a little bit of perhaps empathy from our peers and just emotional support, like uh, them acknowledging that, hey, it's really tough, you know, the the number of clients and, and, and pointy end, I guess, cases that you're managing at the moment. Mm-hmm. But the other side of that is that, you know, and I and, and I've mentioned before, I've got inattentive ADHD. And so that plays a significant role in my role as a psychologist and how I really do need that more structural support um, to manage caseload, to na- even navigate, you know, week by week, how many cases I'll take on. And yeah, no, I'm really glad that you have those supports. And it, it sounds really valuable for listeners to know as well, just the importance of that. I guess one, maybe one question I have for you, Natalie, is how do you make sure that you're getting what you need from supervision? Yeah, um, I've, I've got a good system in place at the moment that works for me. So I always, anytime I think of something and reflect and go, oh, this would be good to talk to my supervisor about in supervision, I'll normally add it to a bit of a drafted agenda. And then usually the day before that fortnightly scheduled supervision session, that's when I'll pass that agenda on to my supervisor so that he can also prepare if there's some resources, um, if it's professional learning, for example, that I want to work on or learn a bit more about. Just gives him opportunity to get prepared as well um, prior to that supervision session. But that's been really helpful for me is to just write it, write it all down anytime a thought pops in my head that would be helpful discussing. No, brilliant. So. Just take us through this challenge that you mentioned to us about supporting young people who are gender or sexually diverse. Yeah, so um, working within, you know, the public sector, within um, the public education sector, I think that more and more I'm I'm seeing um, students feeling comfortable to share in session with me, you know, their gender identity journey or if they've got questions around their sexuality. The challenging aspect of working with these students is that, you know, within the school culture and school structure, it it can be a little bit difficult to advocate and to support um, these young people, especially when uh, more society as a whole, we are, I feel a little bit still behind in a way. Um, And perhaps, you know, as well, a lot of teachers, um, even my own experience, you know, studying to be a teacher, we weren't given that much training around uh, or even education around what does gender identity mean? What does sexuality mean? 
um, what are what are the, what are pronouns and and you know what are what are all these different labels? What do they mean? And how do I support this young person in my classroom? So yeah, the those students that present to me in counselling sessions have have been difficult to support, not because of necessarily their presentation, but because of the structural and cultural and um, lack of education that is present really at the moment. What are these students needing that you find it hard to advocate for them for because of those structural barriers? Yeah, I think young people essentially just want to feel accepted, feel understood. Mm. I think a barrier to that is the unfortunate nature that you know, sexuality and um, gender diversity, you know, there's not a lot of understanding around it, but there's also quite a lot of anxiety within school systems to educate further because of perhaps parent responses or individual parent community um, opinions around that. So that's a barrier to, I guess, allowing for um, celebrations to occur, such as we're at Purple Day, um, in school settings or a hesitancy for, for various schools to um, be proactive in this space. That's a real shame, isn't it? Because, yeah, again, it's like you want to you want to meet those clients' needs and make sure that they can be accepted by the community. But, yeah, I wasn't aware that there was a bit of anxiety in schools about educating further. Like are they scared that, I don't know, if they educate further about gender identity that everyone's going to be gender diverse or something? I, it's a really good question. I genuinely believe that, um, obviously not myself, but, you know, I think that there are perhaps, you know, members within school communities that do feel quite quite anxious about what questions will follow and how do we even answer those questions because, you know, whether it's teachers or the executive staff of schools, I mean, they have such limited understanding and, and access to education themselves that they, they're not sure how to handle those questions that may come from parents or from students themselves. So unfortunately, the approach that is taken is, is to take more of a reactive approach and not a proactive approach. Mm. Is there capacity in your role as a psychologist to advocate on this? Like, is that a role that you can play in schools and be like, hey, I think it's really important that we do educate further about this? Yeah, yeah. I think that I'm I'm quite lucky in my position where I do have a bit of flexibility within my role. I mean, yes, I do assessment and counselling, which is core to my role as a school psychologist, but I also have a bit of flexibilities to work within the wellbeing team um, or learning support team within primaries and high schools. So as an example, uh, one of my schools at the high school, um, we've got uh, what's called the GSA, which stands for Gender and Sexuality Alliance, Um, And lots of high schools run these student social clubs, really. And and it's kind of an opt-in process. We just run it at lunchtime once a fortnight. And um, it's specifically for kids who identify as either gender or sexuality diverse, but it's also open to their friends and allies and even any teachers that want to join and 
and just, you know, come and come and connect with others, like-minded individuals and have a safe space that they can turn to. So I guess like, could this be a way of changing the school culture? Like, do you feel hopeful about this? I do. Yeah. I mean, in the high schools, it's, it's worked. And again, it, it depends. I mean, everything requires executive level approval um, by the principal, by deputy principals, but um, it's been really su- successful within my senior high school where I work at. And in terms of the primary school sector, that can be a little bit more challenging to run something like that. It's typically run in high schools, but celebrating something like Wear a Purple Day, I think, is a wonderful start to perhaps um, that gentle um, acknowledgement of, hey, there are gender or sexuality diverse children, you know, within our school setting and, you know, you're seen, you're valid and we accept you and, and not only accept but we celebrate that diversity. Yeah. No, that's really beautiful. Yeah. And yeah, what an affirming message to to children and young people who who are gender diverse. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And mm. it's really wonderful that we have, you know, events like We're a Purple Day. Yeah. That was started, I believe, in a school in Sydney. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. That's so cool. Thank you. Yeah, I think it started about 10 years ago. So where a Purple Day just passed recently yeah. and, and I was having a read of what how it all started, but I think it started about 10 years ago or so. Yeah, no, that's really nice. What I'm hearing is that you're highlighting that I guess when you work in a school, there can be cultures within the school that do not, I guess, sit well with psychologists like where we could say look you need to accept and celebrate gender diverse folks and then the culture of the school is quite hesitant and that can be a real challenge to navigate it, it can be yeah and, and it definitely makes you feel like you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place in those circumstances but I, I think there is always opportunity to bring about positive and more accepting cultural change it's just something that needs to be carefully planned and mapped out and you know something that you kind of chip away at and it's not something that I've learned that you kind of can't just come in and and want to shake things up completely um, because we're, we're not talking about working with one person we're talking about working with an entire school community yeah which is like yeah teachers parents students support workers education assistants like everyone exactly yeah Yeah. no really good point so don't expect that cultural change will happen in one day be patient and chip away at it (laughs) exactly yeah okay (laughs) natalie are there any other challenges that you wanted to take listeners through that you've navigated so far Probably one more quick challenge to mention is around just having inattentive ADHD and navigating that. Yeah, tell us about it. As a psychologist. Yeah, so, I mean, I was only diagnosed about a year ago. The journey of exploring even pharmacotherapy and and taking Ritalin versus Vyvanse, I mean, that's been um, an interesting journey where, um, I'm still working on that. I'm yeah. trying to navigate the side effects and seeing what medication, I guess, works for me that will help my brain be that little bit sharper. But it's been challenging in, I find, perhaps the, the counselling side of things um, in the session I found in the past more so where I was shadowing 
um, and learning the ropes um, of how to be a school psychologist, um, I found that I would either lose my train of thought or would take my case notes and write them down after the session rather than taking notes during the session. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, a key thing I learned was um, definitely take notes during the session um, so that you don't forget. Yep. And that way it's a lot more accurate as opposed to, okay, I've been working with this student for an hour, we've been having discussion, and now I have to try and recall, you know, a summary of all that information. Um, and if I don't have any case notes that I've just written some bullet points down in the session, that's just really challenging to do. So yeah, no, same. I like, I know there's some psychologists who say like, nope, I don't take any notes during the session, but my working memory is so poor that it's like, if I didn't, I would be after the session, like, I have no idea what just transpired. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. and I would just be come up with a complete blank. Like, I can't remember stuff from like an hour ago, you know? So it's like, I, I also take notes during the session. Yes, yeah, it was definitely a tip that I've been using and will continue to use Great. and has allowed me to keep on track and Great. have you know, accurate case notes, which is what we want. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yep, definitely, yeah. Okay, let's move on then to talking about self-disclosure. So have you noticed that with young people that they want you to self-disclose or has it been that you've been like, oh, I have a relevant experience here that I could share? Yeah, um, I, I find that I guess young people haven't um, expressed that they'd like me to self-disclose, I guess, because they don't know either that I have ADHD um, or that I identify within the queer community. But that definitely has come up um, and there's been specific times where I feel it's appropriate to share that. Um, I definitely don't disclose that in any opportunity um, and at every session with any client. Um, there's a number of factors that come into play where I would feel both comfortable and feel it's appropriate for the therapeutic session to share that. Yeah. And like, has that been difficult for you? Like maybe as a teacher, did you disclose much or how's, how self-disclosure looked at when, when you're a teacher? Yeah, I would say, and again, this is just going off my own experience, but I'd say it's quite different in that when I was a teacher, there was definitely a lot of anxiety around, well, as a teacher, I didn't have my ADHD diagnosis, but in terms of being a member of the LGBT community, I didn't share that, um, that, that I was a member of that community, even if I had a student in my class who um, was quite visibly a member perhaps of the queer community yeah. themselves but I just didn't feel and again this comes back to perhaps the culture of the specific school that um, one works in you know if you feel that perhaps that might you know sharing that or sharing that oh, on the weekend you know I went with my female partner to um, the beach you know men even mentioning that you know, there's a bit of anxiety to share that when I was a teacher, the anxiety that came from not wanting to self-disclose when I was a teacher um, mainly came from the fact that uh, I worried a lot about what parents would say or how they'd respond if their child oh. came home and shared that. Oh, okay. So yeah. there was a lot of fear around that. Yeah. Yeah, there was. Isn't and that I guess sad? It, 
It is, yeah. And um, I think we're slowly but surely moving toward a culture where it is okay to share that and feeling that, you know, even if, um, say, a parent was to contact the principal of the school and express that, you know, they, they thought that was, you know, inappropriate or anything like that, um, we're moving to a culture where we feel that principals will back us, so to yeah. say, and mm. kind of not really buy into even that level of conversation with a parent. Yeah. No, that's really good to hear that you feel like that's shifting a bit because obviously there have been some fairly high profile cases where teachers have been dismissed for being part of the queer community. There has been, yeah. And and, and I think it really depends on what type of school you work in, whether it's public versus private sector schools or independent yeah. um, Catholic, you know, those um, perhaps more religious schools. I mean, they, they all have a very different culture Yeah, is the sense that I get. Just jumping off what you said before that you share when you feel like it's appropriate to the therapeutic relationship and when it will be of benefit to the client, I guess, do you feel more comfy now owning that identity as being part of the queer community and being neurodivergent now that you're a psychologist? Is it different? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, um, reflecting on you know these labels essentially that I have I've experienced these labels from a more um, empowering perspective rather than uh, like a deficit model approach I've kind of reflected and gone well these are my labels and it helps me communicate with others you know how I present myself how you know my brain is wired a little bit differently it's also quite helpful in you know understanding and explaining that psychoeducation yeah. around you know um, either gender identity or sexuality or yeah ADHD so in some ways I really feel as a psychologist that you know even among colleagues that you know, these labels are, are celebrated. Yeah. And there isn't that stigma within the psychology community, but it's interesting that perhaps as a teacher and perhaps in other fields, it can be seen as a stigma. I'm really excited that you feel that way because, yeah, as somebody going through the provision, I'm really excited that that's the perception that's being created because absolutely from my perspective, being like three years registered, I absolutely see these important parts of ourselves as being useful therapeutically, like the more authentic we can be. We don't necessarily have to disclose it to clients, but the more us we can be, I think the better for therapist well-being and I think it produces good outcomes for clients. So I'm really glad that you're feeling that it's celebrated because, yeah, I feel like it's worth celebrating. Yeah, and, and it should be, you know. Yeah. I think that, you know, these things, you know, I think that every single human brain is so unique and we're all wired differently. So sometimes I reflect and go, you know, even though I'm explaining a bit, doing a bit of psychoeducation on, you know, say a young person presents with the label of having ADHD or anything really, in some ways I think, you know, it's it's just it just offers an opportunity to understand each other better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it helps us relate to one another in better ways. Yeah, 100%. So I know you were really keen to giving listeners some tips about case reports. Okay, hit us. Yeah, so um, I mean, I've reflected, I'm about, yeah, like you said, a year and a half into my four plus two journey. 
and I've successfully just heard back a month ago that I've got my first case report approved. So, well done. Um, so that's very thank you. That's very exciting. It it was it was a tiresome process getting there to submit my first one because it probably took about a year or just over from the point of drafting it to actually getting it submitted. That can be really extensive. Yeah, I, I think my my hot tip is to get started early because once you do um, have a go of writing the case report and you've done it and even better, get it um, submitted and approved, you know, that that kind of imposter syndrome kind of fades away or that, you know, that question of, you know, is it good enough? You know, am I, do I know what I'm writing in this report? Do I know my stuff? And it helps, it helps to build that confidence to submit the next one and the next one. So yeah, I've been on a bit of a roll and now I've got my second and third one drafted and submitted the second one waiting to hear back. But I've, I've kind of, yeah, taken a year to do the first one and get that approved. And then the second and third one I've drafted within about a month or two timeframe. That's amazing. Doesn't that really speak to like how far you've come and how much you've learned? I get what you're saying that it yes, can really yeah. boost your confidence and be like, yeah, I'm learning. Yes, exactly. And I think it, I think that first one took such a long time to draft because when I first started drafting it, I was very much at the start of my internship, you know, that plus two pathway. But even it's incredible a year and a half into it, I feel, I mean, maybe not pro level, but I definitely feel a whole lot more confident um, going into writing these case reports. But it is, it's a lot to get your head around. And, you know, my tip you know, to, to fellow prob psychs is to get started, you know, talk to your supervisor about what um, clients, you know, might be appropriate to do a case report on. Yeah. And I also found doing the assessment case reports first and then looking at the intervention ones um, was a better approach of going about it. No, good tips and really good tip about talking to your supervisor early about selecting clients because I know just from seeing provisional psychs online and having been a provisional psych myself, there were lots of interesting cases I wanted to do, but they were too complex for the case reports. You just got to go with a very simple presentation where you can demonstrate to the board that you know what you're doing. Um, You know what an assessment is, you know how to intervene, and you can do that with something pretty standard. If you do something that's too complex you'll go for the word limit and then you won't be able to showcase anything yes you've hit the nail on the head there yeah Um, and you know my assessment case reports have looked at as an example the first one looked at um, mild intellectual disability great Um, the second one looked at specific learning disorder and then now I've just drafted my first intervention case report which is looking at depression and Brilliant. I've already got my fourth one lined up. Wow, for look at you. Yeah, and that's on anxiety or social anxiety disorder probably. But Yeah, I did one on depression and one on social anxiety. Yeah. Yeah, I just think that they're, you know, probably the ones that are neater to yeah, write. They're pretty, they're pretty <laughs> neat to write. Yeah, you're right. So I think they're quite yeah. good selections. Nice. Well, well done. Thank you. Let's talk about just where you want to go in the future. Like I know you're still in your provisional psych and this might be a bit of a question that comes with some pressure, but is there any direction that you want to go in the future? Do you like working with children and high school kids or do you want to go back to just the young kids? Where are you thinking? 
Yeah, I've reflected on this actually a lot more recently um, as I'm coming up to hopefully wrapping up the, uh, you know, prof psych journey and eventually becoming a fully registered psychologist, hopefully next year. Um, But I definitely feel that since I've been working, uh, it's been the start of last year, I've been working in the senior high school and I've really enjoyed working with the more senior end and older students. Cool. And so that, yeah, reflecting on that has made me go, oh, how funny that I'm a primary school teacher yeah. <laughs> and I've worked with primary age kids for, you know, five, six years now. And yet I really enjoy in terms of psychology and counselling, I really enjoy working with the older students. And so that has kind of indicated to me that in the future I probably will always enjoy working with youth but I don't know maybe even working for headspace or you know if I do private practice I'd love to give a go of um, working with adults as well um, kind of more across the lifespan yeah cool so yeah that's kind of where my head's at in terms of yeah the the sort of clients I want to work with and age ranges no that's really exciting Yeah, it is. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's wrap up then, Natalie. It has been a delight to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on board and sharing your personal experiences with us and your professional journey. I really wish you the best of luck with the remainder of your Hall Plus 2 internship and you'll have to let us know when you get registered so we can all celebrate for you. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to share my story and I only hope that it helps at least one listener out there. (laughs) I reckon it will. I reckon it will. And so, Natalie, if listeners want to learn more about you or get in touch, where can they find you? So um, they can check out my Instagram handle. It is a relatively new account, but um, I've got some free resources on there. But the handle is at thatschoolcounselor. And yeah, give me a follow on there and um, check out the free resources that have popped on there. Fantastic. And I'll pop that link in the show notes for listeners. Well, thank you again, Natalie. And thank you listeners for listening. Catch you next time and have a good one. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career psychologists. I could use some help getting the word out about this podcast. If you wouldn't mind, take a moment and give me a review on iTunes or Spotify or let someone know about the show. Thanks for listening. Have a good one and see you next time.